Lord, we are so grateful for the many different ways you have blessed, the many different ways that you have shown your grace to us. We are an incredibly blessed people. We have so much here, not just speaking of material possessions, but the riches of your kindness toward us in your word, Lord, the full scope of your completed canon, your your living word, the freedoms that we enjoy as we gather to worship. Oh, Lord, thank you. And most importantly, as Glenn said, we are grateful for the lavish grace that you have shown us in kindness through Jesus Christ, your sacrifice for our sin, our Savior, and our only hope. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table today by spending our time in this incredible chapter, I pray that you would open our eyes and do incredible things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be this morning in Exodus chapter 23 and 24. Uh, The goal here is to move through this passage, which really flows together very well. I titled the sermon, The Commander and the Covenant. The Commander and the Covenant. And it's an unbelievably perfect Sunday that God would put the table before us in this text to share together. I want to begin with the commander of the army of the Lord. The commander of the army of the Lord. Verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, this is an amazing text. Uh, You have the Lord sending an angel. And notice the the preface here, it's an angel. And so, as you're reading along, you're like, okay, that's, that's interesting. He's sending an angel. And then you start seeing some of these things, and you're like, wow, that's, that's a very incredible thing to say of an angel. Uh, for instance, this list, he will guard you on your way, and, and you are to obey his voice, and don't rebel against him, the angel. He will not pardon your transgressions. Well, what angel is active in either pardoning or not pardoning sin? What angel can be said, my name is in him? He will fight your enemies. What an amazing thing. Even, even that, that the Lord would say, I will be an enemy in the context of referring to this angel. And so you begin to think, boy, there must be something more here than just an angel. And I think that would be very true. And I, I tell you why I think that in this text there is reference to Uh, the second member of the Godhead. Because when Joshua begins the conquest in Joshua chapter 5, he has an interaction with someone who is more than just an angel. Let me show you this. This is the fulfillment of this promise in real experience of Joshua. When Joshua was by Jericho, okay, the first battle of the conquest, about to begin, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him 
with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, uh, Are you for us or for our adversaries? This is one of my favorite answers. And he said, No. <laughs> Isn't that great? And if you're Joshua, you're like, No to the first or the second? Is it no to both? Should I pull my sword and try to fight you, or should I just like fall down? No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Oh, I love this. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did what? Worshipped. There are no other places in Scripture where angels simply angels will allow for worship to be received by them this however is more than just an angel he said to him what does my lord say to his servant the commander of the lord's army said to joshua listen to these words take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and joshua did so now where have we heard those words Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. This is almost word for word the exact same thing that the manifestation of fire that was burning in that little bush but not consuming the bush. Those were the words God spoke there. These are the same words spoken, I believe, by the pre-incarnate Christ, the, the Son of God. In the form, being represented as a man with a sword in full battle array. And then you can read the rest when you go home. It all unfolds and Jericho is defeated with miraculous work of God. So this promise to God's people is more, I suggest, than just an angel. This is a, a representation of God himself in place and not only guarding them, but then also calling them forward and commanding them. He is the commander of the Lord's army and the commander of his people. What is their call? Obey. Listen and obey. General Jesus, as you might say. General Jesus. Now, the terms of the covenant. Let's keep reading here. Uh, a little bit on this, this, this word covenant. Sometimes we use this word in church. I don't want to assume we all know what we're talking about when we say that. Uh, as far as the covenant goes, we're referring in this instant to uh, the, the Mosaic covenant. In previous sermons, we've looked at the variety of different covenants, the covenant of, of Adam and Eve that God made with them. Uh, there was a covenant with Noah, right? That I'm going to hang the bow, my bow, my rainbow, and I will never again judge the earth with water the way I have done. Then of the most familiar, maybe, Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham. An unconditional covenant that God made to his people. God passed through. It was, it was God himself saying, I will fulfill all of these things unconditionally. It will happen. Now we come to the Mosaic covenant. This, however, is a different kind of covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. This is a conditional covenant. This is this is how the terms are going to unfold. And so the word covenant is, in a sense, an agreement or a contract 
that establishes and defines the relationship between parties. Uh, you who are married have a covenant relationship with your spouse. It's a, a contract, the, the vows, right? Those are the vows that you spoke. There was a ceremony that went along with it, probably a reception dinner. Where do we get this from? It's patterned out of this very text. Um, when you bought your house, you had to sign an inordinate amount of paperwork. It seems like every time we have to do that, there's more to sign, more and more papers. That is a covenant. It's a contract. It defines the terms. How is this going to work? We have a relationship now with the bank, and we do our obligations, and they fulfill theirs, and then if I fail to do this, then there are things that they, they can do you know, to me, and that's a conditional interaction. The terms of this covenant are committed by both God and His people. There is a requirement for God to do what He is promising that His people do what He calls them and commands them to do. If they don't do this, God is not bound to keep these promises and blessings. In fact, He is bound to keep His curses that He pronounces. And so let's look at these. Commandments, promises, and blessings, verses 23 to 31. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and lots of ites, okay? And I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. So, the first few verses here, we have blotting out, bowing down, and breaking apart. God says, I am going to blot out. You are to not bow down to anything or anyone but me. This is the covenant def defining interaction. And additionally, you are to not leave these altars and these pillars and these uh, pagan worship places uh, in place. You are to tear them apart, break them down. Don't leave them like that. Let's read on. You shall serve the Lord your God, verse 25. And he will bless your, uh, your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. And none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea of the Sea of the Philippines, uh, or of the, uh, not the Philippines, that'd be a, quite a border, of the Philistines, and from the wilderness of the Euphrates uh, to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. This, that's a great sum up. I will give them into your hand, and you shall drive them out. It'll be my hand at work, and your work. There's a, a cooperative 
interaction that's taking place here. Very much similar to how we understand the work of sanctification in the life of the believer. Work out, believer, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and works in you. That's awesome. He works and we work. He gives and we are to take. The blessings of obedience. These are tremendous blessings. I summed them up with all bees. You have bread, barrenness, no more. You have bees or hornets, much scarier. Can you just, I mean, you got to enter in a little here. Um, I will drive them out with hornets from where they live. They're, they're literally evicted by God's hornets. That's painful. Who here has been stung by a hornet? You know, have you seen those red wasps, those big, you, you guys have seen those down there. There are certain hornets that just strike fear into your heart. Imagine divinely appointed hornets that are there to drive you from your home. You, like you leave your home to run from God's hornets. That's kind of amazing. But God can do that. God can do that. Now, he won't do it all at once because he wants to be careful and, and sensitive that, that the land is not overrun by wild beasts, right? So even in the way that he is going to cause them to take the land, he's thinking and he's calculating uh, just the perfect amount of wisdom applied in these things such that it'll be a right pace. It won't overwhelm them and they'll be protected from the wild beasts. And he establishes their borders. These are blessings, tremendous blessings for obedience. That's the key. For their if they obey, these blessings are theirs. They are to be counted on. But the condition is their obedience. I like how this is spoken of little by little. I will drive them out before you. I am reminded regularly both in the mirror as I consider my own life and in counsel with some of you as we walk through the trials of life, the battle against sin. Uh, God does not sanctify us overnight. The fruit of the Spirit grows on the tree that is rooted in the gospel, but it does not grow overnight as much as we would love it to. It takes time. It takes time. Sometimes we need to be patient with the, the work of God in our lives. Sometimes when we see our sin, yes, we grieve it, but don't, don't be condemned by it, friend. Be called to more righteousness, one step at a time. We're going somewhere, but it's not going to happen overnight. The work of being made holy is a marathon work that we see similarly with this taking of the land little by little. God is working and we are working. Now, a word of caution, verse 32 and 33 here. You shall not make a covenant. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Think mousetrap. 
If I was really brave, I would have set a mousetrap off right about now. But those things freak me out, and I like all my fingers. And so think that, though. It's like walking through the house at night and stepping on a mousetrap. It's a little thing, but man, if it hits your toe, you're going to know about it. It can bring you to your knees. Their gods, their worship, their ways. Here's the caution. Don't fall into that. Why would they be tempted to, right? We came out of Egypt. We saw God's sovereignty over the pantheon of Egyptian gods. Why would we be tempted walking into the promised land to to, to bow before their gods? Well, think about this. You've been living in the wilderness, and you cross into this land that flows with milk and honey. It is a fertile and rich land. And you think to yourself, I don't want to mess this up. How is it that this land produces so much? Well, they've been living like this for years. Look at how it's worked out for them. This is what they do. They boil a young goat in its mother's milk and they sprinkle it on their field. Maybe we should do that. Or they bow down to this God to ask for fertility or they do this or that. You see, the temptation is real. This is what they always have done. So, why shouldn't we do what, what they're doing? No. The word of caution is easy for us to not connect with, but this would have been so tangible for the people who were possessing this land. Don't do what they have done. Who do you think made the land of promise the land of promise? Their gods? No. The sovereign, the one who is, not the non-gods. Covenant exclusivity is required in the contract that God establishes through his mediator, Moses, to his people. Forsaking all others, I thee wed. Covenant exclusivity. Marriage is a picture of the covenant love of God. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to the Lord. He alone is the one you are to bow to. Faith and future grace also meets us here. You have to trust that I will provide for you in ways that you cannot even imagine. But trust me, worship me, obey me, and I will bless, I will bless, I will bless. The promise of blessing. Now, the confirmation of the covenant. This is an incredible chapter. I want to move through this as we prepare then to come to this table because I think it will open your eyes to some things that maybe you didn't see before. Chapter 24, let's start in verse 3. I want to get the sequence of these things flowing consistently here. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Okay, just stop there. This is what I would call the book of the covenant. Moses writes it down. He writes down all these words. Now, I think in this you see both the words and the rules. I I would distinguish here from God when he spoke directly to all of Israel, those Ten Commandments. Remember their response? We can't handle this anymore. Go tell Moses. Moses, you talk to him, and then you tell us. So the ten words of the Ten Commandments 
Yes, those are there. And also, everything else that God told Moses, now he tells them verbally, and then he writes them down. Writes them down. And here's the amazing thing to remember. Moses is the author of the first five books of your Bible, the Pentateuch. So in this work of writing, Moses is pinning the very scripture that we're studying even right now. It's incredible to think about it in those terms. He writes them down. Moses, the mediator, and the people respond, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They make this commitment. They are all in. We will do this. This is like signing uh, and dating on your contract for your house. We're going to buy this house. Signature. Date. Boom. I'm in. I'm all in. Now the blood of the covenant. The second part of verse 4. Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people uh, uh, he sent young men of the people who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the next day, Moses gets up early and he builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. And around this altar, he builds 12 pillars. Each one reflects a different tribe of the people of Israel. All 12 are counted. And in the the very focal point, the middle of this This array of pillars that represent, symbolize God's chosen people that he has made and saved. In the middle of that is an altar. The very focal point of all of their worship service. And then comes this sacrifice. Many sacrifices. I would guess probably at least 12. One from each representation of the pillars of the people brought then and sacrificed to atone for or to cover the sins of the people in these things and then he reads from the book he reads from the book i i heard a fascinating message that basically said why do we do what we do when we gather for worship it comes out of this chapter it comes around the focal point of the sacrifice that we share in. It comes around the book that we have been given divine disclosure by God Himself, the authority of God. We listen to those words, and we are responding then to those words. In view of this altar, we respond to those words, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient to receive those words in. Even to sing them in response is another way of preparing our hearts to receive those words of God and then put them to work in our lives and obey them and do them. He took this blood 
and he sprinkled half of it on the altar. That's a lot of blood, okay? There's a lot of blood that is now sprinkled on this altar. This altar would have been stained red with the blood of the substitute sacrifices. And then he took the blood, and after the people had said, we're all in, he said, listen, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And he began to sprinkle the blood on the people. Now I'm about to do something I've never done in ministry. And to be clear, this is tap water. There's nothing holy. Okay, we're not going back to the pre-Reformation days. Okay. So what I want you to do is put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites in that worship service. They're gathered for worship. And all of a sudden, Moses takes this blood that has been offered and he begins to sprinkle it. You feel that? You, you feel it? I want you to picture, this is just water, it's not blood. Okay, I want you to picture this. Sorry about the glasses. This is on you. How are you going to, you can't get that out of your shirt. It's on you. This is the blood. What is this about? What does this mean? Why would he do this? The book of Hebrews reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That sacrifice should be me. This blood that has been sprinkled on me, that should be my blood. It's on my face. I can feel it. Do you see how tangible a God is? He engages our senses. He reminds us that this blood, this blood is the blood of the covenant. And it, it hits our face and it runs down. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because that is the price that God requires. And every sacrifice points to who? Jesus. Every single sacrifice that was ever set before the Lord in worship by the Israelites was to point to Jesus. The fulfillment of those sacrifices. Every drop of blood that hit their face was to point them to the Messiah who would come and shed His blood for them. This gets real. The blood was also a reminder that if they disobeyed, the blood would be theirs because God is holy. If you disobey, that blood becomes your blood. May the blood be on our heads if we break this covenant. Worship has a weight. There is a weight to this worship service that we do well to enter into. It's not entertainment. It's not just, I want an experience. This is weighty worship of the God who is the blood of the covenant. Now, think about this. Think about the, the flow here. Let's go to verse 1. Then he said to Moses, 
Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and, and worship from afar. So come up onto the mountain and worship from afar. Come close, but not too close, right? Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So there is a, a distinction now made among the general population of Israel and those leaders, those 70 appointed leaders that God had raised up in representation of the nation, and then also in anticipation of the priesthood, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Now verse 9 tells us when they, they come up. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They are brought into the presence of God in a special way through the blood of sacrifice. If they were to have set their foot, these 70 elders, anyone but Moses, would have set their foot on that mountain, they would have been killed. Even their animals. Why can they come now? Because of this contract, this covenant, and the blood that's been shed. They're invited to draw near. Do we hear Hebrews, Tom? You see, draw near, therefore. You, you feel this call. Because of the blood, come near. And they saw God. I don't know quite how this all unfolds, but God invites them in a very special way to see Him. And what we know about this is that they saw mostly uh, the place that He stood. Maybe they got to glimpse some feet, but mostly what they were captivated by was the pavement. L look at this. They... They saw, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, clear and stunningly beautiful. So no, I don't think they saw all of God. No, I don't think they saw the face of God. I think God allowed them to glimpse His glory, like I will allow my glory to pass by, and you will just see the, the, the back part of my glory. Is it, is it heads past? I'll let you see that, but no more. You can't handle more. So they're, they're reaching for language, as it were, you know, feet and sapphires. You can't even put it into words. That's how glorious God is. I'm thinking Mount of Transfiguration. Same kind of thing. What is going on here? Should we make some tents? I don't know what to say or do. This is stunning. Brought in by the blood. And then they eat. And they drink. Does this make any sense to you? Because I, I, all of a sudden, we've got 74 people having a feast. And they're on the mountain. So someone is bringing food up. They must have prepared for this. They, they had food and, and drink. And, the, and now they're sitting and they're eating. They're feasting. In the presence of God. And they're not struck dead. They're feasting. Interesting. 
Moses and Joshua then are called up. Let's see how this goes. Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. This is cool. This is a, a mention of Joshua here again. We saw him previously in a battle, but now we understand where he is going to be located when everything goes down with the golden calf in chapter 32. Joshua is not in that mess. He's on the mountain. Now he's not all the way up with Moses, but he's a little bit down from there waiting for Moses. He took his assistant Joshua. This is the, uh, the leader of the conquest. And Moses went up into the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That's a bit of a cliffhanger. It leaves us off, but we're going to see now the interaction that takes place during this period of time over the coming chapters. Moses is invited to see the Lord, to spend more time with the Lord. He is the mediator, the go-between between the people of Israel and the God who is. The glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Hmm. Response this morning, as I thought and prayed about how this text meets us, I couldn't take my eyes off this table. It's an amazing thing to be invited to draw near to God through the provision that He has made on our behalf, through the sacrifice that is the focal point of our drawing near. We, we come how? We come needy, sinful, wretched, hopeless, apart from Jesus Christ. Or we dare not come at all. We would be consumed. And so we come. And he invites us, draw near. Draw near with confidence. Because Jesus has paid it all. The work is done. And you could come. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant whose blood sprinkled speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, Tom, I know I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit because you're going to get here soon, but I have to just see how the sprinkling, because you felt that. You, you felt that sprinkling. The blood sprinkled, the blood of Christ that's been sprinkled on us speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? What is the writer of Hebrews calling us to in that phrase? What was it that the blood of Abel cried out for? 
justice. The man who brought in faith a sacrifice that pleased the Lord was struck down out of the envy of a man who brought a wimpy sacrifice. His own brother. His blood sank into the earth and it cried out for punishment of sin, for retribution, for righteous anger and wrath and justice. But the sprinkled blood of Jesus cries out for something else. Why? Because Jesus took upon Himself our sin. And His blood that flowed that we now are about to celebrate in this supper of our Lord is is shouting out, testifying, and speaking what? There's mercy for sinners. there's, There's a place where those wretched sinners as we are can come and find grace and forgiveness and mercy. That's the better word. But the blood of Jesus speaks to us. It speaks hope. It speaks, come, sinners, come, be forgiven. No grace, no mercy, no Jesus as Lord. And so we come. And this is what we say when we partake together. Just a minute or so, we're going to say this. This cup, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant. See what he's done? He has made the Mosaic covenant obsolete by fulfilling all of the requirements of that sacrifice in his perfect obedience and willfully laying down his life This is a new covenant. It's better than the old. It's what the old Mosaic covenant anticipated and pointed to. And it's in my blood. It's in my blood. He anticipates the work that he would be completing the very next day. It's in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. O people who have been set free by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven, and called to draw near and behold the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare now to come to this special table, we think of all of the significance of these verses and we We are in awe. We see the plan of redemption worked out of old, even now in this moment, working out according to your perfect plan, your all-sovereign purpose in this place and in these people. Oh, Father, if there would be any here who would be just crying out under the weight of their offenses and sins against you, looking for mercy, trying to find hope, I pray that you would show them the face of Jesus, your Son, the perfect sacrifice that you sent to take upon Himself our sin and to pay in full that price that we might be forgiven through faith in Him. Bring life, O God. Bring forgiveness. Bring peace all through Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.